The third reading is from John, chapter 17. Then Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. We continue this evening, the third of the five midweek services in which we go through and speak about communion fellowship, why it is that some are indeed invited and welcomed to the altar for Holy Communion and some are not. The first week we talked about the necessity of being baptized and taught in the doctrine of what the Lord's Supper is and confessing with one's mouth to believe it, to truly believe it in one's heart. Last week we talked about the necessity of somebody truly wanting what it is, the forgiveness of sins, not just a God stamp on whatever they happen to be doing, however they happen to be living at the time. Tonight, the third of the five, we're going to talk about the one that I think gets the most attention when the topic of closed communion comes up, and really, to be honest, if I'm being honest, the one that gets the most objections from people inside and outside of the Lutheran Church. And that is, we commune at our altars those who are publicly united with us in all doctrine. That is, we commune people who, in addition to the things we have treated previously on these Wednesday nights, we commune people who are members of our congregation and fellowship of congregations. Now, it is a sad state of Christianity. And it has been, not just for a few years, decades, or even centuries, but millennia. The body of Christ is divided. See, Jesus prayed, and we heard his prayer, his high priestly prayer from John in the third lesson. He prayed to the Father that his followers may all be one, just as he and the Father are one. And yet we, his followers, his church, the bride of Christ, are indeed not one, There are many different confessions of the Christian faith, many different statements of what it truly is and means to be a believing Christian. And there's a lot of overlap between them, a lot of ground that is covered that is the same, a lot of points where all of us nod in agreement, but there's also a lot that's contradictory, that disagrees one confession with another, and you cannot reconcile these things. And what's more, it is not just minor things where these disagreements happen. It is not superficial, these disagreements. For example, while we're talking about communion, is communion Jesus' very body and blood, or is it not? Christians disagree. 
Are we saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, for the sake of Christ alone? Or is there some combination of works built into that? Do we believe that the Bishop of Rome is in fact the head of the entire Christian church on earth and we must bow the knee, kiss the ring, as it were, and believe and hold to the doctrine that he says authoritative or not? These are real divisions. These and so many countless others between people who follow Christ, between believers in Jesus, and there seems like there's no sign of reconciliation coming around the corner. This is the sad reality. And this sad reality of the different camps inside of Christianity comes to mind anytime somebody cannot join us at the Lord's Supper. And so the question that some people might have, can't we do our part to bridge the gap by opening up admission to the table? Or more to the point, aren't we just contributing to the divide by saying no to some people? Now, I would be very shocked if nobody in this room has never, or if people in this room have never had those thoughts cross their mind, okay? Feel free to tell me in the handshake line or later this week if you really want to. That's fine. After all, we know what it's like. Around here, Calvary and Missouri Synod Lutheran churches are pretty much alone on this. As far as Protestants go, certainly, and even you'll find some Catholic churches where they will actually commune you, something that was unthinkable 60 years ago. So why do we keep it up? Why do we do what is to be frank, kind of one of these unpopular practices. Why do we still do it? Is it a faithful, biblical practice, or is closed communion just a relic of an old, we've always done it that way, Lutheranism, which belongs to a different age? I think to answer this question, we need to understand what unity actually is. See, when Jesus prayed, as was told to us by John in his gospel, when he prayed that the church be one, he was praying that the church, the believers of all generations, would be unified together. That is, he didn't want his followers to be divided. That's an understandable prayer, isn't it? It's one of those things that makes perfect sense when you hear it. We know Jesus said elsewhere, and probably more people know it as an Abraham Lincoln quote, but he said it first, a house divided cannot stand. Indeed, we are stronger together. A cord made of several, or a rope made of several cords is much stronger than each of those cords individually holding something by itself. And if there is one God, and if his word is true, it stands to reason that there are not multiple truths and multiple confessions and churches with equal standing. That is to say there is one church, and that one church of Jesus Christ ought to be united together, unified. Hence the desire, hence the prayer on our Lord's part. But the thing is, 
Many people think that the essence of unity is being outwardly joined together, outwardly, visibly united. But being united is only a facade. It's only something that's illusionary. If unity in doctrine does not exist, unity in teaching and confession, to be outwardly united where that doesn't happen, where you're on the same page with what you believe, is just the appearance of unity when there is no true unity. And if and when Christians decide to go down that route, decide to have that, well, there are three bad effects that you can see time and again, and many of us found our way here to the Missouri Synod because we saw those effects, and we wanted to find a place where they actually drew lines and kept them. Number one, that sort of thinking denies the clarity of God's word by implying that God's word can indeed lead to multiple contradictory ends. Where one person can say it means this over here, and he's right, and another person can say this over here, which is the opposite, but he's also right. That's what that outward unity without the inward unity implicitly says is the case. In the second place, when we seek only the outward unity and not the inward unity, it shows that we are actually, in that moment, despairing, giving up, of ever actually coming to agreement with our fellow Christians, reconciling the differences, getting straightened it out, whether they admit they're wrong or even we admit that we were wrong. It's sidestepping, resolving, truly resolving the issues. It's kind of like, you know, an example of a couple, a married couple who they are at each other's throats when nobody else is around, always fighting, but whenever they're out in public, big grins and smiles and hi, how you doings and just trying to let everybody know that everything's fine when in fact it is not fine. But third, I'd say, and worst of all, of the three facts of doing church fellowship this way is that this gives tacit, implicit endorsing of false doctrine, false teaching in Christ's holy church. We all learned in the second commandment that one of the ways that we can and do misuse God's holy name is when we lie or deceive by it. Okay, it's not just saying, I swear to God, when you're calling down his name upon to witness the truth of something you're saying, which we really shouldn't do, but it's when somebody gets up and says, thus saith the Lord after something which is not true. Whether it be, it's not really Jesus' body and blood. Whether it be there are more than one ways to heaven, but through Jesus Christ alone. Those are lies. They are wrong. And to have fellowship openly with people that teach them and believe them is to partake in them, sanction, and even implicitly endorse them ourselves. Now, somebody could say, well, okay, in practicing open communion or some form of open communion, that's not my intent to do anything like that. Well, maybe it's not someone's intent, but it is certainly the implication regardless. And that is borne out time and again in churches that do these things. Do we believe that God is telling us the truth in the Bible or not? 
Do we believe that biblical doctrines, biblical teachings matter, or they don't? Do we actually want, not just an outward facade, but true unity, to be united with our brothers and sisters who share a different confession of faith? Well, if we do want those things and believe those things, we need to have biblical standards and we need to keep them, to follow them. We need to hold to what we confess, the Bible says, and refrain from fellowshipping with those who don't. That's what he's talking about in the second reading when he says, expel the divisive one. We need to pray for reconciliation between Christians. We certainly need to pray that. And we do some form of it every Sunday in the big prayer. And we also need to not give the false impression that that reconciliation has in fact happened. Are some people turned off by this practice? Yep, absolutely. But we must obey God rather than men. That's what it always comes down to. And what's more, and this is the money line here, we need to love our fellowship and confession of God's word, and we need to love other people that differ from us in that confession, love them enough to say to them, no, not yet. Hopefully someday, but not yet. Every Christian desires to be united with other believers in Jesus Christ, and we certainly are no exception to that. We want to be together with the whole body of Christ, and we want to enjoy fellowship with that body in this life. But let us labor, let us live towards this, being united not just in appearance, but in actual reality. That's the unity which actually does honor our God. That's the unity which actually does for the world and our children confess that he is true and not a liar. And that is the unity which will foreshadow and does foreshadow the true, actual, and unbreakable unity that we will enjoy with all Christians in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. We remain seated.